Champion. Welcome to the show. Today, there are anniversaries. There are two anniversaries that we are going to observe and commemorate on the show today. One is the opening of the United States prison. This is the 21st anniversary of the opening of the prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. It is also the 30th anniversary of the terrible double murder here in Northampton, the murder of Sherry Morton and Cedric Seabrooks. Cedric was 18 months old. Her, his mother, Sherry, uh, was 23. It is a event that is really one of international significance because it has been such a motivator with regard to combating domestic violence, and we will be reviewing that and commemorating that with people who knew Sherry Morton. First, we're going to commemorate, we're going to observe the founding of the United States Naval Prison in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. We have with us to do that Nancy Tulanian, who is the founder and longtime director of No More Guantanamo, No More Guantanamo's, and Bruce Miller, uh, professor, longtime professor of constitutional law at Western New England University School of Law, now Professor Emeritus, and Buzz Eisenberg, defense counsel for many Guantanamo Bay detainees. What strikes me on this, the 21st anniversary, is how much attention we are not paying to Guantanamo, how it has not only disappeared from the news headlines, it has disappeared from the news cycles altogether. And that is striking to me. So let me start with you. Buzz Eisenberg, of course, this is Buzz of the Afternoon Buzz here on WHMP as well, a uh, longtime defense attorney for Guantanamo Bay detainees. Is it still open? Is the prison still open? Are people still there? I mean, what's going on there now, today? Uh, regrettably, I have to report that it is indeed open. Uh, there are 35 men still there at that dreadful uh, corner of our planet. Um, I do want to thank you, Bill, for highlighting this 21st, I guess it's an anniversary, I don't know what to call it, a remembrance, I guess, and, and you have two local heroes in the studio with you, Nancy Tulane is a tireless uh, advocate for the men there, and Bruce Miller as well. Uh, they do not forget that there are men still there. Okay, why are they there? And how long have they been there? And are they getting out? Well... I think the majority of them have been there between 2002 and 2006. They've been there for there. Uh, 20 of them are uh, held. Uh, let me just start by saying they're all being held lawlessly. And that's just an unassailable fact. But having said that, the ostensible reason that 20 of them are being held in uh, is under what's called law of war detention, but they have been recommended for transfer quote, if security conditions are met, end quote, which means if the United States military and the executive branch is satisfied that they're going to a place where they're going to be uh, not active in, uh, in terrorism, then they'll be transferred to those places. There are 10 of them that, have been, that are there that have been charged in the military commission setting, which means that the military trial is a different jurisdiction than what we're accustomed to in our federal system, what we call our Article Three courts. The military has its own system and 10 of them have been charged. Two have been convicted by pleading guilty um, in order to 
find a way to get out of there. And there's an additional three that are held indefinitely in law where detention that have not been recommended for transfer. Um, so uh, this law of war detention notice, Bill, if everybody, you know, they say history, I just said this yesterday, I think, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Well, if we all think back to World War II, we had these Nazi soldiers that we'd take, they were prisoners of war, and at the end of hostilities, um, we, we segregated those that we thought were drafted into service or even volunteered into service, but were the just soldiers from those who really were the brain trust of the Third Reich and those we tried in the Nuremberg trials and the rest of them, at the end of hostilities, we let them go. Here we're relying on that same law of war notion, yet hostilities ended when the president ordered that we withdraw from Afghanistan. So the only thing that's left is our war against terror, which will be a forever war. So I suppose those who love freedom should just ponder the following. Can we just hold people forever and ever and ever as long as a war on terror exists by the United States efforts to stop terrorism? And if the answer to that is yes, we have to rethink whether we can call this a free society. Well, let me find out if the answer to that is yes by turning to Bruce Miller, longtime professor of constitutional law at Western New England University School of Law. What is the answer to that, Bruce? Well, the answer to that question, of course, like most questions, depends on who you ask. But if you ask our executive branch, regardless of what party uh, is, is represented by that branch, Democrat or Republican, the answer they would give is yes, the United States government does indeed have the power to hold people without charge forever for the rest of their lives. Uh, none of our uh, presidents have repudiated that. All have sought to defend it in court. Uh, in fact, Guantanamo is the first example that I know of of our government uh, detaining people at a place for the express purpose of evading restraint by the rule of law. Uh, if you ask uh, most American citizens, I would say, they would say, no, we ought to charge people if we're going to detain them. We ought to detain them only um, if they have done something wrong and if it has been established uh, in, a, in an appropriate proceeding with due process that they've done something wrong. Uh, Guantanamo stands for a rejection of all of those ideals. Um, and so far, as given your, your point, Bill, which is a very good one, that we're forgetting about it, uh, it may eventually fade away without our ever learning the lesson uh, that it is a failure uh, to reject that basic ideal of fairness. I would like to know this. There were close to 800 detainees at Guantanamo uh, in the course of this chapter of that prison there, and there are now 35. Um, as I recall, uh, Dick Cheney told us those almost 800 people, they're the worst of the worst, the most dangerous of the dangerous, the people who are going to bring the world to its knees through terrorism. And then, lo and behold, of all administrations, the Bush administration, who lets most of them out because, well, how to put that? Well, let me ask Nancy Tulanian, who is the founder and longtime director of No More Guantanamos. Tell us a bit of that history. How did we get to 35 people? How did we get to 800? Yes, well, um, most of the men who were, have been there, 75%, were sold for bounties. When you drop 
leaflets on very poor countries offering 5,000 or more dollars per head, people are found whether they've done anything or not. You could just be a stranger, you could just be a son-in-law that somebody didn't like, and off you go to Guantanamo. So that's how people ended up there. Um, the Bush administration, I believe, pretty soon learned that um, Guantanamo wasn't um, such a gem. All the countries in the world, or a lot of the governments in the world, were outraged. And he quietly released 555, I believe, in his administration, and he wanted um, the prison closed. So three out of four presidents have said that they want to close it, um, Trump being the outlier, of course. Um, we'll see what um, Biden does, but the problem now is you've got guys who have never been charged. They've been tortured. Uh, 20 of them, I, I mean the 20 who haven't been charged, are waiting for countries willing to take them after the rest of the world um, has taken in a, quite a number uh, of people who were not their own, but they couldn't be transferred to home countries. They didn't necessarily have a country, um, and uh, they wouldn't so necessarily be survive more than a minute or two if they were returned back to their home country. Exactly, tortured or killed. So let me ask this to all three of you, and I'll start with Bruce Miller, and your and from your perspective as a constitutional law professor, what is it that gives the United States government the right, if any, I think Buzz says there is none, but what's the claim? Why do we say we have 35 people locked up? They've been locked up for 20 years, 21, some of them may only 18 only, I put that in air quotes, uh, without charges. What's the rationale? We have to say, we, we're not, the government isn't out there saying, oh, it's illegal, we're just doing it anyway. What are they saying? Two claims. Uh, the one is uh, that a, a law passed by Congress a week after the events of September 11, 2001, called the Authorization for Use of Military Force, gave to the president, as far as Congress was concerned, uh, the power to take any measures he saw fit against anyone that he determined to have anything to do with the events of 9-11, or importantly, to have provided aid and comfort to those who did. He, the president, meaning the executive branch, the including the military. The president could do it because Congress said so. Uh, the second source of authority claimed by our government is uh, the inherent authority of the president to do anything he sees fit to protect the country. This is an example of something we've seen elsewhere, this idea of a unitary executive uh, subject to no check from any other source. So those are the, are the two arguments. The first one depends on the, on the notion that Congress can somehow suspend all of the requirements of due process and equal protection because uh, of, of, of terrorism. And of course, terrorism requires uh, uh, measures, important measures, in order to prevent it, uh, but not at the expense uh, of our most profound constitutional values. Now, let me turn back now from Bruce Miller to Nancy Tulane. And again, Nancy was the founder and longtime director, has been the longtime director of the Northampton-based No More Guantanamos. I'd like to congratulate you on this part as for part of the, your title, the director, founder of No More Guantanamos. You've been enormously successful 
no more Guantanamos. In fact, black site prisons around the world have been closed as far as we know. However, the first objective to close Guantanamo itself has not been totally successful. There are still 35 people held in prison, many without charges, none at this point with anywhere to go, in part because the United States won't accept any of them. We're asking the rest of the world to do what we won't. That said, um, I would really appreciate knowing from you, Nancy, where this effort stands and what your activities, what your efforts are directed at today. Well, we continue uh, to call for the closure of Guantanamo, but at the same time, we have to remember all these men who have been sent elsewhere are not necessarily in good situations. They don't get assistance from the United States government and not necessarily from the countries where they've been resettled. So um, we have co-founded uh, a project called the Guantanamo Survivors Fund and have been raising money and helping men around the world who don't necessarily have work permits, they don't have legal status, they don't have refugee status, uh, and they have the stigma of Guantanamo, uh, which makes it difficult to rebuild their lives and um, find jobs, et cetera. So we've been providing medical assistance and uh, assistance with for rent for them and their families. Many of them do have families and children uh, and difficulty supporting them. Some of the Guantanamo detainees were repatri repatriated to their home countries. Some were sent to countries that they'd never been, uh, where they the country speaks languages that they have never heard or spoken uh, to places where they are, have no jobs, no family, no support, no anything, but they did get out of Guantanamo. I get that's an improvement of sorts. I, I would like to ask you, Buzz Eisenberg, you represented, uh, I think, eight or nine Guantanamo detainees. Did your clients go back to their home countries or were they re sent to places or countries other than, well, their home country? I represented eight. Um, one of them was a Palestinian. Israel would not let Palestinians come back. Uh, so he was sent to Uruguay, and along with another five. He was terribly unhappy. He didn't speak Spanish. He didn't even know where Uruguay was. He knew nothing about that uh, Latin America. And and uh, the others are, um, well, I had one who was a Syrian slash Algerian. He ended up in Algeria because the Syrian craziness was happening. Uh, the other six were all repatriated to their own countries, but um, some of them were marked as targets by the governments in their own country, particularly Algeria. They had to literally hide because they were seen by the government there to be uh, more aligned with the Muslim extremists that were trying to bring the government down. So they hide in the hills. Um, this, two of them were Saudi Arabians, uh, Saudis, um, made them go through a deprogramming, brainwashing, basically, 30-day program as a condition of their uh, repatriation, and then would not, as, as a condition of remaining free, would, the Interior Ministry said, you may not uh, talk to anyone in the West, any reporters or your former lawyers, so we've lost touch with them. So I can't really report on how well they are or are not doing, but um, it's not a pretty picture. and. Uh, I the survivor fund is just uh, such a great idea, and I encourage people to participate in it 
because so many of them really need help um, when they get out of this dreadful prison camp. Nancy Tulaney, if people want to contribute to the Survivors Fund, how do they do that? They can go to nogitmos.org, our website, and click on the link for the Guantanamo Survivors Fund to learn more and make a contribution. A final word on lessons from this experience, Bruce Miller? Vice President then Dick Cheney uh, said that it's time to go to the dark side. Uh, the lesson we haven't learned yet is that when we go to the dark side, as we did at Guantanamo, everybody loses especially us. We leave it there. We Bill, let me just, yeah. well, before we leave it there, let me just promote this afternoon's afternoon buzz. We are going to um, be the, the indefatigable Nancy Tulanian will be joining us. So will Beth Jacob, who currently represents five of those detainees. So will Mark Falkoff, who I think has been involved in representing 13 of them, one of whom he's co-counseling with Beth Jacobs. They will be on this afternoon on the Afternoon Buzz, so please do join us. The Afternoon Buzz at 4 o'clock here on WHMP. Buzz Eisenberg, Nancy Tulane, and Bruce Miller, thank you all so very, very much. Stand up this is Bill life. Newman, WHMP. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. They say that the one constant in life is change, and while that might be true for most things, one thing that hasn't changed is the great meal and great time you're always going to have at Roberto's in downtown Northampton. Stop by six nights a week to dine in, hang at the bar. If you don't want to eat in, there's always Roberto's new online ordering system. Just go to robertosnorthampton.com and you can order, pay, and pick up dinner six nights a week. Roberto's is open every day except Tuesdays, right on Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton. And save 30% on the Shop 30 store. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Jay Sealer, Vice President Commercial Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Our team of commercial lenders are here to help you and your business grow this year. I'm Laura Guzik, Vice President Commercial Lending. We're a small business administration preferred lender, and all of our lenders at the co-op 
have individual lending authority, which means fast local decisions so you can get back to business. I'm Adam Baker, Vice President of Commercial Lending. Are you ready to chat with one of our experienced local lenders? Visit bestlocalbank.com or meet with us in person at any of our Franklin or Hampshire County locations. Or if it's more convenient, we'll even meet you at your business. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Jay Sealer. Or me, Maura Guzik. Or me, Adam Baker. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. On January 11, 1993, the entire community of Northampton was shocked at a double murder that occurred on the streets of this city. With us this morning to commemorate that event, we have Michael Quinlan and we have Kara Meckleholm. And I'd like to start by asking Michael Quinlan, a name I think that is well known to uh, many of our listeners uh, as a former Northampton City Councilor. It's not the role in which he comes here today. And Michael, you have a very personal connection to this double murder, one of an 18-month-old child, one of a 23-year-old mother. So for those of our listeners who don't remember or don't remember with some clarity this story, would you tell it to us, please? Oh, sure. Um, you know, my, my friend Sherry... Um, you know, she had been in a relationship with this man, Sean Seabrooks. Sherry Morton. Sherry Morton. She had been in this relationship with this man, Sean Seabrooks, for some time. And they had a baby together, Cedric. Um, and Sherry had moved out, had, had moved to, uh, to uh, an apartment in Meadowbrook. She had gone to the Skills Center. She got a wonderful job at Vancourt Industries in um, uh, the industrial park at the time. And Sherry was a friend of yours. Sherry was my my closest friend. Uh, we were we were inseparable uh, for a long time. And Cedric was my godson. Um, so we we had this very close relationship. We spent we talked to each other every day. Uh, and this was before texting. So it was really a you know it was a very close relationship. Uh, and Sherry had started to kind of get herself uh, into a state of independence. Um, and then uh, on on. This day, thirty years ago, Sean Sean killed the both of them, and uh, it was it, as you said, it was a shock to the community. Um, and you know, I think about uh, what's happened in the last thirty years, or what 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 has shaped my life, what has, what has shaped Yoko Kato's life. I think it's Sherry's mom, uh, Cedric's grandmother, and Jeannie Morton is uh, Jeannie Banus is Sherry's sister, and and what you know how much. Uh, this changes you and how much it, it really impacts not just us, but the community. And the community has been largely supportive of, of Yoko and, and her tremendous efforts uh, to shine a light and try to to be a champion for victims' rights. Uh, and, and she's toured internationally, right? She's spoken in, in her native Japan. She's, of course, fought really hard here in Hampshire County to try to reduce violence in families. She's, she's an incredible advocate. She took this incredible uh, setback and turned it into strength and, and real might. Before we turn to Kara McElhone, who is the executive director of the Children's Advocacy Center, to learn about those efforts, I think we do owe it to our listeners for me to ask you, to the extent you want to and are willing, to share some of the details of what happened that day. 
So uh, it's it seems that <clears throat> Sherry and Sean were having, uh, you know, there there was a history of violence between you know there. Um, you know, she had been hurt by him a number of times. That's why she moved to Northampton. Uh, she was. Uh, she first moved to West Hampton to live where, with Yoko. Uh, Yoko was living there, but but Sherry wanted to be independent. She had her own. Yoko child. was her mother. Yoko was her mom. Yeah, and so uh, seems that they were having. This is again, you know, mostly from the police report. Um, but um, you know, it seems that they were having some sort of argument about money because uh, Sean was there for dinner uh, with with Sherry and Yoko, or with Sherry and Cedric, and. Um, you know, with a kitchen knife, killed the two of them, uh, you know, and and went back to Springfield, told his father, told a friend, the friend called the Northampton Police Department, who who went immediately to Meadowbrook uh, on the scene and uh, and confirmed it. And, you know, uh, recently Yoko and I were talking about, it. I don't think we ever haven't talked about it in a long time anyways, that uh, the Northampton police were at her door in West Hampton at four o'clock in the morning to deliver the news. And I remember um, the news that her that, daughter, that her daughter and, and grandson, grandson had just been murdered. Had been murdered in a knife attack. Correct by the father. Yes. Father. Uh, and the you know when you when you really dig into the details, it's it's pretty frightening. Um, you know, in general, but but to know that you know to know that one one thing that I would that I always. Um, think about is they, the, the police report does indicate that Sherry had a lot of, you know, uh, wounds to her hands and her chest. I mean, it seemed like she, Defensive was, she was fighting. She was fighting to protect herself and, and, and Cedric, I'm sure. Um, and, you know, Sean was, was bigger and stronger, and I'm sure in a fit of rage. Sean is Sean Seabrooks, who yeah. was indicted for and convicted of two counts of first-degree murder. Yeah, serving consecutive life sentences. Without the possibility of parole. Correct. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to continue this conversation, and we're going to learn about the efforts to end or at least mitigate domestic violence here in the Valley. We'll be speaking with Kara McElhone, who is the executive director of the Children's Advocacy Center. Please stay with us. Get in on the conversation. Call 413-586-7140. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Northampton City Council will now be faced with the decision on whether to cap the number of cannabis dispensaries in the city. This comes after a four-member subcommittee was split on the idea on Monday sending it to council with a neutral recommendation. There were over three hours of public comment, both for and against the cap, including Mayor Gina Luisera, who opposed it. The mayor said Northampton's restriction-free approach has resulted not only in more safe and legal cannabis, but also fewer empty storefronts and good-paying jobs. The ordinance will now go before city council on January 19th. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation will be holding a virtual public workshop for the Northern Tier Passenger Rail Study today at 6 p.m. The purpose of the meeting is to present the two initial service plan alternatives and evaluation framework. Feedback received will be used to develop four additional service plan alternatives as part of Phase 2. The meetings are part of MassDOT's study to determine the viability of passenger rail service from North Adams to Greenfield and Boston along the Route 2 corridor. Joan Holliday, WHMP News. 
Agents from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Criminal Investigation Division conducted what city officials describe as a surprise inspection Tuesday morning at the Bicam Chemical Company related to ongoing concerns about regulatory compliance. The plant is located at 238 Nanotuck Street in Florence, situated in an industrial complex that was once home to the Procorp. Mixture of sun and clouds today with a high of 34 to 38. Will be mostly cloudy tonight. Chance for a few overnight flurries, a low of 20 to 26. Some brief snow showers tomorrow morning, changing to a mixture of rain and snow showers during most of the day tomorrow. A high of 42 to 46. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Los principales demócratas están dejando la puerta abierta para reevaluar el papel del controvertido sistema de pruebas estandarizadas de Massachusetts, ya que algunos defensores de la educación revitalizan los llamados para abolir las pruebas o eliminar el requisito de que los estudiantes de último año de secundaria las aprueben para recibir un diploma. Los legisladores crearon el Sistema de Evaluación Integral de Massachusetts en una ley de reforma educativa de 1993 que tenía como objetivo mejorar la responsabilidad y el rendimiento escolar. La Asociación de Maestros de Massachusetts se han opuesto durante mucho tiempo a la prueba. La asociación volvió a fijar su mirada en el examen en diciembre cuando estableció sus objetivos de política para la sesión legislativa de 2023-24 y describió los exámenes SEMCAS como destructivos y punitivos. Mientras tanto, Massachusetts por primera vez en al menos ocho años tiene una gobernadora que puede estar más dispuesta a la idea de cambios en el sistema MCAS. En otras informaciones, los jueces de la Corte Suprema de Estados Unidos lidiaron el martes con una disputa laboral que podría reducir las protecciones federales para los sindicatos al facilitar que los empleadores presenten demandas por huelgas que resulten en daños a la propiedad de la empresa. Algunos de los jueces conservadores parecían inclinados a reforzar la capacidad de las empresas para llevar a los sindicatos a los tribunales estatales, mientras que los jueces liberales expresaron su preocupación por la erosión del poder de huelga de los trabajadores organizados. La jueza liberal Elena Kagan dijo que un fallo amplio a favor de las empresas podría socavar las decisiones sindicales sobre cuándo ir a la huelga, que a menudo se hacen para presionar a los empleadores causando daños económicos. Por su parte, el presidente del Tribunal Supremo Conservador, John Roberts, dijo que existe una distinción entre causar daño económico y la destrucción intencional de la propiedad. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We are commemorating, observing, paying due heed to the two murders that occurred in Northampton 30 years ago today, the murder of Sherry Morton, age 23, and her son Cedric, Cedric Seabrooks, 18 months old, by Sean Seabrooks, who is now serving two consecutive life terms for first-degree murder. After uh, Michael Quinlan, after there was a trial, you, you testified at the first trial? Yeah, the first trial here at the Hampshire County Courthouse. And then there was a reversal of the conviction, a new right. trial ordered by the Supreme Judicial That's Court. That's right, and the second trial was moved to Pittsfield, to Berkshire County. And he was convicted again of both? Convicted again, both. And then those convictions were affirmed by the Supreme Judicial Court, and he's now serving two consecutive life Correct. terms without the possibility of parole. Correct. Let me turn to uh, Kara McElhone, uh, the executive director of the Children's Advocacy Center. There is an event today, this evening, to commemorate, to observe, to take note of uh, 
these, this horrible event here in Northampton. And also to note the extraordinary efforts that you and others have taken to combat domestic violence since that day, both internationally and also very much here in Hampshire County and in Northampton. Tell us about, well, first about the event this evening, and then I want to hear about the efforts of the Children's Advocacy Center, of which you are the executive director. Kara? Sure, thank you. So this evening at 5 p.m. at the old um, Hampshire Courthouse lawn, we'll be gathering for a candlelight remembrance of Sherry and Cedric. Um, public is more than welcome to join us. Um, it's going to be a time we'll have a few folks speaking, and it'll be a time to remember their lives and to honor um, Sherry's mother, Yoko Kato, who is a longstanding board member of the Children's Advocacy Center and a real champion for children and families and victim rights here in Hampshire County, throughout the state, and as Michael said, internationally as well. Again, the event will be at 5 o'clock this evening? Yes. A candlelight vigil in, remember, in remembrance of Sherry and Cedric? Exactly, right? yes. Okay, the public is a absolutely welcome to attend and to share. Tell us, if you would, please, what does the Children's Advocacy Center do? Sure, thank you. So we bring together a coordinated response to child abuse allegations in Hampshire County. We work closely with law enforcement, with the prosecutors at the DA's office, um, with DCF. We have mental health care and medical care. Department of Children's and Fam Children yes, and Families. Yes. And um, we bring together a team to respond to allegations and to help kids heal and get the safety and justice that they deserve. And we're located in Northampton, although we serve all of Hampshire County. Um, and we're in a house designed for kids to make kids feel comfortable and safe. And essentially, the, the model is that they only have to tell their story once. And all the adults who need to figure out a plan come together, prioritize the needs of this child in a safe and welcoming environment, and then we begin helping them go through the process of, of healing. So there is a safe house for victims so, of it? So of it is not a, no one stays at our house. This is a location in which people can receive services like um, investigative services as well as advocacy mental health, and there's an on-site um, medical care. And is there a system in place for safe houses? A, a, a woman, mostly women, say, I've just been attacked. I've been the d victim of domestic violence. They, the person comes to you. What happens? So, you know, we work with a lot of partner agencies. It, it really depends on the, the situation. You know, the, where our primary um, focus is the children, um, and they're, they're our primary clients, but we know that this, in order to keep kids safe, they often, um, keeping their mom safe is, is often part of what, what needs to happen. Um, at, the, at the Children's Advocacy Center, we provide services for any child who's experienced abuse or assault. So that goes beyond domestic violence. Um, it can be, you know, any community violence of any kind. This may be a bad question, but I, I really would love to know the answer. Um, is there a way to quantify whether or not there has been success in terms of reducing domestic violence here in Hampshire County? And I'm not sure we have data that proves it one way or the other, but I would appreciate your perspective on that as the executive director of the Children's Advocacy Center. So one of the ironies that we see is that we are, we feel like the success is better when we have higher reports. So we know only one in 10 children who experience some sort of abuse, it's ever reported. So the more folks that are making reports are filing either police reports or, or 51As with the Department of Children and Family, 
And when, as we get an increasing number of those reports, which we have for the past consecutive years, our hope is that means not that more children are being harmed, but in fact, more adults are stepping up and speaking out on behalf of kids. Oh, that is ironic. That yeah. is ironic. The more, the more reports there are is an indication of progress. Well, for instance, during COVID, our reports plummeted. When kids were not in school, kids were not going to medical care in the same way. We know that, that the way to keep kids safe is to have safe adults who are mandated to report when they're concerned about a child. Let me turn back, if I might, to Michael Quinlan. You were the godfather for Cedric Seabrooks, 18 months old, when he was murdered by Sean Seabrooks, his father. Um, on this day, this 30th anniversary, this remembrance of that horrifying day here in Northampton, uh, how do you feel? It's uh, I, I've said for many years, January 11th is my least favorite day on the calendar. Uh, it's been, you know, it's there's a lot of emotion here. There's a lot. Um, I mean, I think the greatest curiosity is what would what would Cedric be like at 31, and what what would Sherry be like at, at yet again 39. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but but I feel I feel proud of Yoko. I feel just this inspiration Yoko from again, her. Yoko uh, is said, Sherry's said, mom. Yes. Yeah. Um, I feel proud of her. I feel this inspiration from her to the strength that she's shown. Um, and, and, you know, quite honestly, I'm feeling generous today. My, my wife and I donated to the Children's Advocacy Center this morning in Sherry and Cedric's memory. So I encourage people to look at, look at the website and consider a donation. $30 seems like a, an appropriate amount if you have the means. Uh, but I'm feeling, you know, as always emotional on a day like this. It's, um, it's you know, it's a, it can be a trying day, uh, but it's, you know, so important. And our thoughts are with you and all, all of the family. Uh, two questions for you as we end the segment. Uh, Carol, Kara uh, McElhone, uh, if you would. Um, well, first, let's do something logistically uh, important. If people want to follow Michael's lead and contribute, how do they do that? Where do they go? <laughs> Absolutely. So they go to cachampshire.org. Okay. And that's our website, and it's easy to do. <laughs> okay. And... With regard to the candlelight vigil this evening, 5 o'clock at the courthouse on the lawn, uh, public, of course, is invited to come and to be part of this remembrance. What does it tell you? What does it mean to you that the community comes together on this day to remember and to say never again? You know, I'm, I can't help but, again, bring back the strength and bravery of Yoko Kato, who, our board member, who, who asks for the community to remember her family. Um, and, and having folks, you know, we can't forget that this kind of violence can happen right here in our beautiful little town. And sadly, there are children and, who are harmed here every day. Um, and so we can't look the other way. We have to be part of a community that helps heal and helps ensure that children have the safety from violence that they deserve. Carol McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center, Michael Quinlan, godfather of Cedric Seabrooks, longtime friend, dear friend of Sherry Morton. We thank you both for being with us today. We thank you for all you do for your efforts to make us a better, safer community. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. 
This is uh, from Rioja, and this is the Tierra. That means Earth. Thank, Thank you. you. I knew my language acquisition would come in handy. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. When you compare Spanish wines, Rioja especially, which is kind of like the Bordeaux of Spain, 90% of the time, stuff that you can get for $12, $15, $20 for Rioja is going to rival things that you're going to get for $30, $35 for Bordeaux. The Tierra is still under $20 at $18.99. I mean, give me a break. I know. Yeah. Nose a little dustier on this one. Yeah. And fruit. Almost like a caramel, actually. It's like cherry cola. Oh, yeah, and this is a, is a Crianza. It is a Crianza. Which is a newer, like a fresher Rioja, right? That's true. Not yeah. quite Hoven. Crianza, it, it doesn't involve nearly as much of the barrel aging as a Reserva or Grand Reserva. I love this. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among co-workers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, -on -one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's shop Friday Roberto's? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Pasta bolognese, butternut squash ravioli, chicken broccoli alfredo, and the best thin crust pizza in the valley. Eat in at the bar or order online at Roberto's in downtown Northampton. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. To play this game, you've got to be as sharp as a blade, as quick as a one-timer, as tough as plexiglass. Oh, and having a solid dental plan, that's probably a good idea, too. Hit the ice all season long right here on the UMass Sports Network. 101.5, 1400-1240-WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Cool Films with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. Larry, before you start on your recommendations and critiques with regard to films today, I want to thank you for your recommendation last week of the film titled 38 at the Garden. A fabulous film. I, I just, I was so moved. Listeners, Larry got this one totally right. Not saying he ever got anything wrong, but this was a fabulous film. It's about Jeremy Lin, the Chinese-American basketball player. They're scoring 38 points at the Garden against the Lakers, but it's much more than that. It is. It's about uh, racial discrimination against Asians and everybody else and how sports reacts to it. It's a wonderful film. It's only 39 minutes and every, well, maybe it's 38 minutes, one for every point he scored. Well, it's it's under 40 minutes because that's the category yeah, for the Academy well, the Awards. the short documentaries, yeah. Right. 
Okay. Yeah. All right. You have a film for us today. What do you have? Oh, it's a film that really knocked my socks off. Last Flight Home. And I was going to review this today. We're going to run out of time, but I'm going to review it with a film called The Janes, which we'll talk about next week. Last Flight Home is about a family facing the death of their father, but it's a planned death under the California assisted suicide laws. And this man, uh, his name his name is Timeter, and he is very ill. He's in his 90s, and he's decided to end his life. The daughter, who is a filmmaker, a well-known, respected filmmaker, decides to film the entire process. And one of the things that makes this film work is that in California, up until recently, the law was, once you say you want to do this, you've got 15 days to do it, right? And if you don't do it, then all bets are off. And you have to follow certain guidelines, and you have to have two doctors certify it, that you are in, in your right mind, compos mentis, and that uh, nobody's going to help you. You have to actually take the medicine yourself, which is kind of hard. You see in this film, the guy's pretty incapacitated. And the film gets deeper and deeper into all the moral and ethical issues. And I don't think I've ever seen somebody die on film in a documentary in this way. We have a clip from this very, very powerful film. Dan, can you cue it up? And then the clock starts. Daddy was so full of life. His legacy is massive. Why not just try? Elon started an airline. He believed everyone should be able to afford to fly. Are you concerned that the big boys are going to drive you out of business? No. Eli was a philanthropist. He would raise millions. He was pillar of society. Meeting with prime ministers, princes, presidents. He knows Joe Biden from the 70s. And even though he ran an airline, so here is a man who ran an airline called Air Florida, very successful, built it up from two planes to hundreds of planes, multi-billion dollar corporation. When he's 53 years old, he has a stroke. He's confined to a wheelchair, and his board of directors votes him off, gets rid of him because they don't want a man in a wheelchair representing an airline. His life is ruined. He loses his fortune. And the film starts out with him in his very modest tract house in Los Angeles, California, with his family around him as he's trying to make this decision. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in this position and known relatives who say, I'm done, I just want to die. Well, in Massachusetts, we have not yet passed an assisted suicide law. Yeah, it's uh, end-of-life choices, I think, is kind of the terminology that yeah. people... Yeah, I don't know. They probably don't want to use the, use the phrase assisted suicide, assisted right. suicide. Because, in fact, you can't assist. Right. You can't assist. And what gives this film its power on so many levels is, one, it has a structure. So you've got 15 days, and they start with, okay, day 15, day 14. Is he going to make it? Is he going to get through all the processes? Can he do it? The guy is charming, right? Uh, he's, his backstory starts to come out. They have the old footage, the archives. And at one point, he decides that he wants to say goodbye to everybody who has ever helped him. And there's, what happens is, and at first I thought this was crazy in this film, a parade of Zoom calls of everybody from Air Florida from 20, 30 years ago, the pilots, the stewards, the food delivery people, his, his household maid get online to say goodbye to him. 
And the daughter, meanwhile, who's married to another woman, it turns out in the credits, I find that the other woman, whose last name, by the way, is Doctor, spelled as Doctor, which is very confusing, um, is the composer for the music and the second camera on the film. So here you have a filmmaker who has put herself in the film and this emotional uh, kind of dance she's doing with her father back and forth. At one point, um, his wife says to him, do you have to have that microphone on you at all times? And he says, I don't want to cross the director, <laughs> the, the daughter, who is the, is the filmmaker. Right? So I'm watching this film, and the, my tears start to well up about halfway through. And by the end of it, I'm just a bowl of jello, right? Because I'm thinking of every, every death that I've witnessed in my family um, without the preparation that this family has, right? Now, here's one of the things that's a, a kicker in this film. It starts off, you, don't get, you really don't get to know the family, but after a while, you start to meet the two daughters and the son. And one of the daughters is a rabbi named Rachel Timoner in New York, who I looked up just before coming here today. He was pretty well-known, an author, has a big congregation in Park Slope. And she brings a spiritual element to the film. Right? So, of course, you start wondering about these life and death issues. And then the rabbi enters. The family is clearly secular Jewish. You know, that's not part of their day-to-day observance. But she comes in and she starts doing rituals with She, them. the rabbi? She, the rabbi, starts doing rituals with them that the family obviously takes to. And in my, my New York Jewish mind, I'm looking at this family, it look, looks so Californian. All the boys have long flowing blonde hair, which I loved. I would have killed to have <laughs> when I was a kid, right? They <laughs> say, hey, these, they don't look like the, the New York Jews that I grew up with. And here they are doing something, which it's easy to see that was not, uh, they were not accustomed to. And the film starts taking on a spiritual dimension and talking to their father, what do you expect? And he starts talking about how he wants to protect them. He wants to communicate with them. And they say, send me a sign, send me a sign, which is almost like spiritualism, right? And he's saying, I'm not going to send you a sign. You just have to know that I'm there. Right? Um, so I connected with this film in a way that I haven't connected with a documentary ever before. You know, I was able to put myself into it, identify, identify with it. Um, and I was watching it with my partner, and we looked at each other and said, this is probably the most powerful film. We have seen bar none, feature film, documentary, you know, public service announcement. <laughs> it really struck me. Have you had this experience, Bill? Well, I want to ask you more about your experience. Uh, the film the title is Last Flight Home, right. obviously. Uh, 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 it's an allusion to his, his uh, career owning an airline. Um, and this is a journey he's taking. People yeah. often use the word, you know, uh, I want to help you on your journey, which I always find a, a little bit facile. You know, what is this journey? It's not a journey, I don't know. It, it's, it's, maybe it's more of a, a, a torturous uh, trek. Well, I want, to ask, I want to ask about that because you described crying a lot yeah. during this film. Um, you are also recommending people watch it. How, oh, yeah. hard, how hard is it? How hard is it going to be well, for me you, to watch? This I'll give you an example. There's a lot of humor. A good filmmaker knows you have to stand, put in humor. You know, you know, with the bathos and pathos, you have to have some kind of comedy. That's why the, why the science of theater, or the you know, the the, the smile and the, and the frown. Um, for example, this guy's in love with Rachel Maddow. 
<laughs> he just, you know, in the middle of all this, he says to his family, it's 6.30 California time. We have to watch Rachel Maddow. Everything stops. This is during the 15 days when during he's During the dying. 15 days. I have to watch Rachel Maddow. So then it cuts to this scene, Zoom call with Rachel Maddow. Really? Arranged, our Rachel Maddow, our WRSI Rachel Maddow, arranged by Ra Rachel Timmeter, the rabbi in New York, part of her, her crowd, one of her friends. And there's Rachel Maddow in, at home, in Cummington probably, um, talking to him at length, right? And the filmmaker lets things play. And there's a, he's having a conversation with his heroine, I guess. Um, and you get to see that this guy, this is actually, if he wanted to live, this is what he would live for. He would live to be able to see Rachel Maddow every day. How can we still see this film? Uh, this film is actually in the theaters now. Uh, but when I looked it up, I found that you could watch it online by paying for it for $3.99. Next week, I'm going to talk about The Janes, which is about the abortion uh, rescue movement the people in Chicago in the, in the 60s and early 70s who provided a, not only referral service, but actually performed the abortions for women before Roe v. Wade. Okay, so we have a film here about the end of life, or ending life at the end of life, and a film about abortion, which is uh, somehow related. Larry Hott, we thank you so much for your time. We, Larry, of course, is one of the members of the Academy voting on the Academy Awards. And, and this will be one of the top films on my list. Thank you, Larry. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for Live the high school equivalent. news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station.